If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of 2 Samuel. We're at the seventh chapter. It's been a few weeks since we've been together in this book, and what better place to pick up again than 2 Samuel 7, one of the greatest chapters in all of the Old Testament, in all of the Bible, really, because it speaks of our great covenant-making God and the covenant that He makes with His people. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word, for the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient, and the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 2 Samuel 7, beginning at verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore... Thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke. To David. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Dear Lord, we ask that you would open up your word to us. 
that as we study it, we would know more and more of you, O Lord, of your character, of who you are and of what you have done for us. Lord, there is none like you. You are the great promise-keeping God. And so we rely upon you. Bless us this morning, Lord, with the truth of your word, a comfort that we have in our days. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Do you have times when you are weary and frustrated? God has given promises to us, but does it seem like often they don't apply to you? For example, he promises us rest, peace beyond all understanding, a home, forgiveness. But does it seem that these things are far from you? This chapter describes a covenant that God made with David 3,000 years ago. But it is a covenant for you and for me. God's covenant promises apply to all his people, even all these years later, even when they are hard for us to see. That's because God's promises are secured by Jesus. In Jesus, God has made all these promises to you. God is not obligated to make these promises, but he delights in being a covenant-making God who blesses. And so this morning, as we look at the first half of 2 Samuel 7, I'd like us to see three things about our covenant-making God. First, we'll see the context for the covenant. What is going on as God makes this covenant with David. Secondly, we look at the God of the covenant, because we cannot understand God's covenant nor his promises unless we come to know who the Lord is. And then thirdly, we see the promise of the covenant. What God has said that he will do, and God always keeps his promises. The context of the covenant, the God of the covenant, and the promises of the covenant. Let's begin then by looking at the context of the covenant. What is going on here in 2 Samuel 7? Now, remember that the events of the book of 2 Samuel are not, strictly speaking, chronological. We saw this in chapter 5, that the story is set forth not to give a history lesson, but rather to set forth for us the larger story of God's work in the salvation of his people. And so David now is experiencing God's blessing. We've just heard about the ark being brought to Jerusalem. And so we come to the very heart of this book. One of the most significant chapters in all of the Old Testament. And what we see here occurs after the building of David's palace, which is described earlier for us in chapter 5, verse 11. And it also occurs after the events of chapter 8 and chapter 10, in which David has victory over the enemies of Israel. God has 
fulfilled his promise to save his people Israel from all their enemies through the hand of David. A promise that we saw back in chapter 3, verse 18. God has accomplished that. And so now is a very unique time for Israel. Think about all that Israel has been through over the years. Starting with the Exodus, they had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They had come to the brink of the land and they had not entered the land because they were afraid of the conflict that was waiting for them. And then under Joshua's leadership, they entered the land and had to fight mighty battles against the tribes of Canaan and conquer cities and lands to dwell in the land. Succeeding the time of Joshua was the time of the judges. This was a time of great chaos in which Israel fought its enemies, in which they were attacked and often oppressed by surrounding nations. And then Saul was king. And during Saul's kingship, the Philistines threatened them. They never had safety. And Saul himself was an erratic and foolish king, so they could not rest. Then, a civil war followed. And more attacks by the Philistines and by surrounding nations. And now, finally, there is rest. Sometimes it's hard to see a time of rest. It's almost as if there is a fog in front of us that hides that rest from us. But we must have faith that God is there and that He will do what He promised. God's time is not our time. And that is hard. But that's what faith is. Trusting God when we cannot see our circumstances. Now what does David do during this rest? There is a saying that good times create weak men. That when times are good, we are prone most to think about ourselves and our own comfort. We can see examples of this throughout history in the Roman Empire, in the British Empire, and even in our nation. When Times are good, we become most concerned about our own comfort and any small nagging problem becomes monumental to us. It occupies all of our attention. But David does something different in good times. Now we can imagine David and Nathan sitting in David's palace during this time of peace. We are introduced to Nathan the prophet, someone who will figure quite prominently in the story of David. And perhaps they're sitting either in the palace or out on a veranda enjoying a glass of wine or maybe because it really is southern Israel, maybe they're having some sweet tea. And they're just relaxing together. And rather than complain about some small inconvenience or even to desire more comfort, David starts thinking about the Lord. He understands that the blessings that he's received from the Lord and he wants to honor and glorify God. Now, even in the trying times of the last year, 
You have to know that we live in one of the most blessed times and places in all of history. We have so many blessings that we take for granted. That we have fresh drinking water all the time. That we have food. We can go to places and choose amongst all different kinds of food. That we have shelter, electricity, plumbing, medicine. We have ways to speak to friends and loved ones who are in far off places and even to see their faces, their smiles, and their laughs. Kings and queens throughout history would be jealous of us. Do these blessings cause you to think about how you can honor God? That's what David did. He remembered the blessings that he had received, and it caused his thoughts to turn to the Lord and how he could honor God. Are you actively seeking to expand your vision of God's kingdom? This is something that we are called to do. Well, the specific thought that David has is to build for the Lord a temple or a house, it is said here in our text. And it is marvelous how the word play is used in this chapter. The temple here is called a house of God. And then you will see later that God answers David and says something basically like, you think you're going to build me a house? No, I'm going to build you a house. And just as in English those two words are the same, so they are in Hebrew. It's a play on words. David wants to build a temple for God. And God tells David he is going to build for him a dynasty, a kingdom that will last forever. Well, David's thought certainly seems reasonable. Why should God dwell in a temple? When I dwell in a palace, a house made of cedar, a wondrous palace, shouldn't God's dwelling place be the grandest of all things? This is something that Christians have thought down throughout the ages. If you travel to Europe, you will see the, the, the churches that have been built, these wondrous cathedrals of architectural marvels that stretch into the clouds. And the insides are inlaid with gold and silver and precious jewels, all in an effort to honor the Lord. So often this is even the case in our country, where we are often more concerned about what our buildings look like than what we teach in our buildings. And more concerned about the size of our churches than the effort of our church is to bring the cause of Christ to our communities. Well, Nathan agrees with David. He thinks to himself, this has to be right. David wants to honor God. He wants to build a, pal a palace for God, a temple for God. Surely this has to be right. And far before the advertising slogan takes root, Nathan looks at David and he says, just do it. Surely this thought has to come from the Lord. But there's a problem here. God has not commanded this. And 
We've just seen in the incident with the ark that it is awfully dangerous for man to assume what God wants. To do something that God hasn't demanded. That should give us pause. Now, we shouldn't think that David had bad motives. We shouldn't think that his plan was even wrong in principle. Because after all, his son Solomon will build God a house. But what it shows us is the limitation of human hands in the kingdom of God. That's why you have Eli watching Hannah in the temple courts and thinking she's drunk rather than praying. That's why you have Samuel coming to Jesse's house and looking at Jesse's oldest son and saying, surely the Lord has chosen this one. It can't be the small one out tending the flocks. We need to be careful when we are sure we know what God would desire. Rather, we should be guided by God's word. Only God knows best. And he has spoken to us in his word. And so then the passage brings the God of the covenant before us. At the start of this chapter, we're focused on David and what he will do. But that very same night, we are told, in verse 4, God enters the picture and changes everything. Isn't that so often what God does? We have our plans, and they get upset. They get overturned. By providence. And then we look back later and see the hand of God. Don't you see that even in your own life? Perhaps when you were younger, you were absolutely certain you had to go to this college. But as it turned out, you didn't. You went somewhere else and you look back on it and you say, I'm so glad it worked out that way because if I hadn't have gone to the college I went to, I wouldn't have met my spouse. Or I wouldn't be living in the place where I'm living. Or I wouldn't have the job that I have. We can look back and read Providence and see God's hand at work. And often we see that our best laid plans were not best for us. So the Lord comes to Nathan and he corrects him in verses 5 through 7. He says to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house? To dwell in, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. The Lord here is reminding David that things have been exactly the way the Lord wants them. It's not a failure. God isn't wringing his hands, wondering if the Israelites will ever get around to building him a house. No. The Lord says that he has not settled or dwelt in a house from the beginning of the Exodus. And, and this word dwelt carries with it the connotation of settling in one place. It's not just living somewhere, it's making it your home. Because instead, God says that he went about, that he wandered about with his people. That's what he did. He was moving about with them from place 
to place. There's a reason why the Lord has not settled. It's because His people haven't settled. And where His people go, God will go. What we need to understand is a fundamental characteristic of the Lord our God is that He is ever-present with His people. That's why He never commanded them to build Him a house. And so God focuses our eyes on a specific aspect of Himself. He is the God who dwells with His people. It's not that God has a place and His people revolve around that. No. God is found among His people because He chooses to dwell with them. Do you know that God is with us now, this morning? That He is with His people as they gather together to worship Him? Do you know that as you go home, God is with you? That He's promised never to leave you, nor to forsake you. That as you go to work, He goes with you. That God is ever present with His people. And so, while His people here are unsettled, He will be also. He has promised them rest, but they haven't received it yet. And until they receive their rest, He won't enjoy rest. Now we should see this as applying to us. Because our God is with us, His people. That's what He does. That's what He desires. That's why He acts the way that He acts. When we understand this principle in 2 Samuel 7, then we can see clearly what God is telling us in John chapter 1. Jesus came to dwell among His people. He came to dwell among us so that we might know God and we might be with Him. That's what John 1, 14 says. It says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word dwelt could also be translated built a tent or tabernacled. Just as God tabernacled among His people in 2 Samuel 7, so Jesus tabernacled in the flesh among us. This is who God is. Your starting point with Jesus is not about what you can or should do for Him. No, it's about what He has done for you. Jesus is proof that God is real, that God is available. He is proof that God is ever present with His people. But there's another thing that we learn from God's answer to David. God not only tells David that he did not command the building of a house, he tells David that he is the ever-gracious God. In verse 8, he recounts the grace that he has given to David already. He says, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. Now, God introduces this past grace with a formal with a formality. He says, Thus says the Lord. 
He speaks through the prophet and uses this prophetic formula that we see throughout the Old Testament, especially in the books of the prophets. Thus says the Lord, the Lord of hosts. This is serious. This is important. It lays the groundwork for all that's to come. Remember my grace is what God is saying. You were a shepherd boy in the pasture. And I made you prince over my people. You were wandering, pursued by Saul. But I was with you wherever you went. I never abandoned you. You had enemies that fought you and pursued you. But I delivered you from them all. Do you think back on all the grace that God has shown you? Remembering God's grace makes us grateful. And it makes us confident in the future grace that he has promised to us. Because God tells David there is more grace yet to come. There is so much more to come. He says to David, I will make your name great. Among the great ones. Now this should sound familiar to your ears because it is the same kind of promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. He told Abraham that he would make his name great. And so now he repeats that promise to David. He tells David he will make a place for Israel, a place of peace and safety. He will plant Israel so that they will have rest from all their enemies. They will be secure. They will not have to wander any longer. He will plant them in this kingdom. And he will raise up David's offspring and establish his kingdom. A kingdom that is eternal. Forever, God says. This is grace upon grace. And it completely overturns the way of men. The normal pattern in David's day was for a king to build a temple for a god, for an idol, in order to receive blessings from that god. It was almost transactional. The king would scratch the god's back, and then the god would scratch the king's back. I will build you this temple and then you will expand my kingdom and give me victory over my enemies and give me offspring to rule for many, many years. The exercise of building the temple was to ensure future blessings. It was a quid pro quo. But that's not the way with God. Do you see what God does? God promises future blessing and favor, and he tells David to wait on the temple. God wants no confusion at all about what he is doing. He is the ever-gracious blessing God. He does not want David to think at all that this is a response to something that he's done. He tells David, I will bless you. And then later on, your heir can build me a temple. Now, there is no God like the Lord. The Lord alone is gracious, the initiator, 
The one who comes to us when we are unworthy and showers us with blessing and hope. Now, what does God mean by this promise that he gives to David? This is where we see the third thing in our text, the promise of the covenant. At first glance, it can be a bit confusing. It appears that God is talking about Solomon. Verse 14 implies that because the Lord tells David, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. And after all, Solomon did sin. Solomon multiplied wives to himself. And because of that, he began to worship false idols and was taken from the worship of God. And God had to chastise him to discipline him. But God promises that the kingdom will never be taken away from David's offspring. Instead, it will be established forever. And this is confusing because almost immediately after Solomon's death, ten of the twelve tribes are lost to another kingdom. And even though David's dynasty lasted some 400 years, Israel was eventually exiled into Babylon. And yet the Lord makes very clear that nothing can stop his promise. You see, in verse 12, he tells us that death cannot stop his promise. It will go beyond David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you and I will establish his kingdom. David may die. But God will raise up offspring for him. Now, God implies that there will be no end to this offspring because David's kingdom is to be established forever. And this word forever means on and on with no end. Not only can death not stop the promise of God, sin cannot stop the promise of God. In verse 14, the Lord tells David, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. David might have feared a repeat of what had happened to Saul in his own dynasty. After all, God had removed the kingdom from Saul because of his sin. And yet, the Lord promises that his steadfast love will not depart as it had been taken from Saul. Instead, the Lord will discipline David's son, but he will not destroy the kingdom. Ralph Davis puts it this way. He says, sin can bring disaster on any current resident of the house, but it cannot demolish the house. David's kingdom is forever. Even time itself cannot exhaust the promise of God. In verse 16, God says over and over again that this kingdom shall be made sure forever. That his throne shall be established forever. You know, it's said that time destroys all things. We certainly see the effects of time on our bodies, on our possessions, and even on our nation. But the Lord makes clear that this promise withstands time itself. It will endure. It will be sure forever. 
And that means it never ends. Ever. Do you see that this is your God? The one who makes promises that cannot be stopped? Not death, not sin, not time itself can stand in the way of God keeping his promises. What more could you possibly ask for? Well, that brings us back to the question, what about Solomon? What about the exile in Babylon? What about the kingdom of Israel? What we have here is a prophecy that has both a near and a far fulfillment. Theologians call this telescoping. There is an immediate fulfillment to this prophecy, and that is Solomon. He is the one who will build the immediate house, the temple, that's described in verse 13. He is the one who will sin and be disciplined. He is the one that will see his kingdom reduced but not destroyed. But the greater fulfillment of this promise is in great David's greater son, Jesus Christ. Jesus reminds us in the Gospels that he is the one who will build and restore and maintain forever the temple of God. Not a temple made with hands, but the temple of his flesh. God will dwell among His people in the person of Jesus Christ, not just in a building that they can visit. Jesus is indeed the offspring, the seed of David. Paul makes this point in Galatians 2 about this word in the same way. He says that Abraham's seed, offspring, is singular. It doesn't refer to the linear Descent from Abraham, his son, his grandson, his great-grandson. No, it refers to Christ. Christ is the offspring of Abraham. And so here, Christ is the offspring of David. Have you ever wondered why there are genealogies in the Bible? You know, Matthew chapter 1, as we read, there's a lot of begets. There's a lot of names, especially hard-to-pronounce names. And Usually we recite that at some point in the Christmas season. But have you ever wondered why these genealogies are here? You know, a genealogy passage is not easy to read, and it's certainly not easy to have your devotions in. Matthew 1 exists to show us that God keeps his promise in 2 Samuel 7. Jesus is the seed of David. He is the offspring of David. It's Jesus' throne and kingdom that are eternal. That's what we're told in Luke chapter 1 and in Revelation chapter 11. It is Jesus that God declared, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son in Hebrews chapter 1, quoting 2 Samuel 7. It is Jesus that is the offspring that God has raised up for an eternal kingdom. It shouldn't surprise you that this word raised up in verse 12 in the Greek translation is the same word that is used for resurrection in the New Testament. Jesus is raised up the offspring. Death cannot hold him and he lives eternally and the throne of David and his kingdom will never perish. 
And so this promise is for you. If only you believe in Jesus Christ. If you trust in Jesus to deliver you from sin and from judgment, He always delivers. There is nothing more for you to do. You don't need to perform mighty acts for God. He is the gracious initiator. He doesn't bargain like false idols. He comes to you with gracious promises. And those promises are fulfilled in the work of Jesus. And nothing can stop God's promises. Not death, not sin, not time itself. As the scripture tells us, all the promises of God are yea and amen in Jesus Christ. These promises are yours if you claim them through the work of Jesus Christ. Come to Jesus. Know the eternal kingdom of God. Know the blessing that comes from having God to dwell with you. Let's pray.